Pray with me, please. Father, we have just confessed how greatly it is that we need you. We have sung this morning that your mercy is more. And how glad we are to discover this morning that your mercies toward us are new yet again today. We are especially thankful for this on a day where we come to a text where we are confronted by the ugliness of our rebellion against you. Father, we will read that the moment they partook of the fruit, that their eyes were opened, and yet when their eyes were opened, their vision became darkened. And so, Father, we need this morning your light in order to be able to see the truths that you would have us to see in your word. So we ask, like the psalmist, lighten our eyes. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. In Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would, to the book of Genesis chapter 3. What do you perceive as the greatest threat in your life? Well, some of you are thinking, there he goes again, starting with the morbid questions. Why does he always start with such a downer? And it is a little bit of a down way to start a message, but this is kind of an ugly text that we have to deal with this morning. So I ask you again, what do you perceive as the greatest threat in your life. Now, there are perhaps many things that we could think of that are threats to each one of us, but I would suggest to you that the greatest threat in each one of our lives comes to us from a warning passage in the book of Hebrews. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A heart that is enticed, that is drawn after, that becomes hardened by the deceit, by the lie of sin, that is the greatest threat to your life and to mine. We see that truth nowhere else more clearly than in our text this morning in the book of Genesis chapter 3. That we've said through our study of the book of Genesis that we would look at five narrative movements in the book of Genesis that would direct our study. Creation, corruption, judgment, promise, and plan. And over the last five weeks, we have looked together at creation, that God made the world in everything out of nothing, that He spoke the universe into existence, and that it was good, and that in some total, it was very good, creation. But this morning, we will experience a catastrophic, a, a cataclysmic shift, not only in the Genesis narrative, but in fact, a massive development in the meta-narrative of the whole Bible, an event that will fundamentally transform the rest of human history. Corruption. Up until now, everything in creation has been good and has been very good. But our world looks nothing like that now. Things are no longer very good. So what happened? How did it all go wrong? How was paradise lost? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? As we look at the drama that unfolds in our text this morning, a drama that sets humankind on a new hell-bound course, we need to begin by understanding, again, the background. 
So we start this morning with the setup. And there are two elements of the setup of this scene that we need to understand. The first is the setting in which it occurs. The man and the woman are in the Garden of Eden, which the Scripture refers to as the Garden of God. We've said it is the prototype sanctuary of God where God fellowships with man, and He has put the man and the woman in the middle of this sanctuary as His image bearers, and they are instructed, the man is instructed to work and to keep it. And in the center of this garden, God has placed two trees. No landscaping feature in the rest of human history will ever be as important as that one. Two trees in the middle of this garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Regarding these trees in the garden, God gives this command back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what is so important about this tree? Why among all of the other trees of the garden is this one alone set aside and man is forbidden from tasting its fruit? This tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, presents man with a choice. A choice between obedience to the Creator or rebellion. The man and the woman are created with moral agency. They are created with moral freedom and with personal responsibility. They get to make a choice. Now, you and I have a sin nature, which means from birth we are bent. We are inclined. We are twisted. We are corrupted so that by nature we desire sin. We pursue evil. That is our sin nature. We are corrupted as a result of what transpires here. But Adam and Eve, at this point in time, have no such sin nature, meaning that they have a moral freedom to a degree that you and I have never experienced. They are created in innocence. They are created obedient to the Creator's commands. They're not bent towards sin. And God put before them a choice that is to be decided at a tree. Now, Christians have long asked and debated down through the centuries why put this tree in the garden in the first place? That raises even bigger questions that we will not have time to exhaust this morning, but questions like, why would God allow evil at all? Why would God permit pain and sin and suffering? Why did God permit Adam and Eve to fall? Those are really big questions, questions that have baffled and wrestled with theologians and philosophers for as long as the church has been the church. So we are not going to comprehensively address those this morning. But I do briefly want to say this. God is all-knowing, He is all-powerful, and He is infinite in His divine perfections. Can we agree on that? And can we also agree that we, you and I, are none of those things? Which means that we are not in a position to know what God knows. And God, in His all-knowing, infinite goodness, infinite wisdom, determined that it was good and that it was right and that it was best to allow these creatures made in His image to exercise a degree of moral freedom and personal agency which required the ability to choose. To make choices that would have real consequences, either of obedience 
or of disobedience. And God clearly, because he loved them, laid out to them what the consequences of those choices would mean. Disobey and you will surely die. Just as every part of his good creation shouted to the man and the woman what their obedience would mean. That it would mean their joy and their flourishing and fellowship with God. They were experiencing the joy of obedience already. Now some would say that the cost of this moral freedom was simply too high. God shouldn't have allowed us a choice when making the wrong choice would cost us so much pain and suffering. But I think that looks at things from the wrong way around. Because we are not the ones who have paid the heaviest price for our disobedience. Because this all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God knew from before He ever created the world not only what our moral freedom would cost us, but what our moral freedom would cost Him. Because Jesus Christ, we read, is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God counted the cost before He set the universe in motion. And it was an infinitely greater cost that He had to pay. And so in the midst of this garden, there is a tree, a tree that presents a choice for faith and for obedience or for unbelief and disobedience. But the second feature of this setup that we need to note this morning is the introduction of a new character in the story, of an antagonist, of an adversary. We meet in chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent. So who is this serpent? What is his identity? In the book of Revelation, there is a description of a war that transpires in heaven. The angels led by Michael are fighting against the fallen angels who are led by Satan. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the identity of this adversary of God who now speaks to the woman Eve through the guise of the serpent is none other than the devil himself. It is Lucifer, Apollyon, the one with many detestable names. But why has he now become God's enemy, and why has he come to corrupt God's good world? He was originally created as an angel of light, so how did Satan fall? There are two passages in the Old Testament that shed some interesting light on that particular question. The first is in Ezekiel chapter 28. Now this is actually a prophecy of lament that is spoken over the king of Tyre. But as is often the case in biblical prophecy, there is a twofold fulfillment of this prophecy, meaning that while this lament is spoken over the king of Tyre, it clearly is more specifically referring to someone else, in this case to Lucifer. So beginning in chapter 28 verse 12 we read, thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness 
was found in you. So God speaks of Lucifer as originally a creation of special beauty, of special wisdom and perfection. He was unique even among the rest of the angels. And from this passage, God seems to indicate that he anointed Lucifer and made him a guardian on the holy mountain of God in Eden. That was the privileged position of this incredible angel until unrighteousness was discovered in him. But that raises the question, what was the nature of this unrighteousness in Lucifer? What caused his fall? And again, we have another prophetic lament, this time from the book of Isaiah, this time spoken over the king of Babylon, but again, another twofold fulfillment, a text that clearly cannot be referring most specifically to the king of Babylon. And I say that for two reasons. First, because the person to whom this lament is addressed is said to have fallen from heaven, which certainly does not describe the king of Babylon. Second, because this person is addressed to as the, the day star or as the son of dawn which is not a reference to an earthly king, but to an angelic being. Because throughout the Old Testament, the angels are referred to as the sons of God and as the morning stars. So whoever this person is who is the day star and as the son of dawn is clearly a unique angelic being. In this case, we understand that it is the angel Lucifer who is referred to here. Chapter 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. What is it that caused the angel Lucifer to fall? He said in his heart, I will make myself like the most high. Pride. Have you ever wondered why do the scriptures so emphatically say that God opposes, that God detests, that God in fact hates the proud? Have you ever wondered why the scriptures say that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall? Scriptures say these things because there is nothing that is more fundamental to the heart of sinful rebellion than pride. Nothing. All evil and sin begin with the simple thought, I deserve worship. Every sin flows from that noxious idea. All sin flows from the creature wanting what rightly belongs to the Creator. And there is nothing that makes us more like the devil himself than when our hearts are consumed with pride. He looked at himself. He looked at his beauty, at his strength, at his wisdom, at his perfection, at his exalted position. And rather than seeing in these gifts the glory and the goodness of his Creator, he looked at himself and imagined that he saw his own goodness and glory. So that he was no longer content to worship. Now he desired to be worship. 
He failed entirely to comprehend the insurmountable disparity between himself, a creature, finite, limited, contingent, and dependent, and the infinite, inexhaustible, self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God who had created him. What should have been so self-apparently obvious that he could never be this God was obscured by the blinding influence of the folly of pride. Because that's what sin pride does. It blinds us. It prevents us from seeing clearly. It distorts and it misrepresents and reshapes reality. And in so doing, pride to us makes us seem so very great and in consequence, God seem so very small. There is no delusion so deep as the self-deception of pride. Which is why the first idol in every heart is the self. And it is a tyrannical God to worship. Because no matter how much you will sacrifice to it, it will always demand more of you. Because no matter how much you place your hopes and your dreams in it, it can never save you. And because the horrible irony is that in worshiping yourself, you end up losing yourself. Because we were created for worship, but we were not created for self-worship. We were created to worship the God who created us. And so every moment of self-worship is an act of self-destruction. In worshiping yourself, you lose yourself. And the first being to experience the bitterness of that reality was Lucifer. In reaching for a position so far beyond him, he lost the position of glory that was given him. In seeking to be what he was not, he lost what he was. Pride promises exaltation, but it always delivers humiliation. Satan's humiliation does not soften him, but it instead it hardens his heart through the deceitfulness of sin so that he would be the implacable enemy of God. This is what sin does. This is the warning of Hebrews chapter 13. Sin hardens. Deceit hardens. The expression goes, misery loves company. And so now this fallen angel returns. He returns to the garden that he was originally created to protect. But now he comes to this place to bring misery to the man and his wife and to corrupt and if he can to destroy the image of the God that he now hates. So we have a garden, we have a tree, we have Adam and Eve, and now we have a serpent, a serpent who is concealing the devilish designs of a fallen angel. That is the setup for the tragic scene that will now unfold in front of us. And as we look at what happens next, we see not only how sin and corruption are introduced into the world, but we get a close-up look at the anatomy of sin, a case study, if you will, in the deceitfulness of sin. You know, what makes Satan such an effective deceiver is that he has firsthand knowledge of what works in drawing the heart away from God. He deceives from experience because he knows the thoughts and the desires that enticed and that deceived him. So you could not design a strategy more effective for deceiving men and women than the one that Satan will here employ. And by the way, he continues to use this exact same strategy, these exact same tactics today. The channels through which these deceptions may run might look a little bit different in our time, but the deceptions themselves are the same. 
They are like storefronts that from time to time get new coats of paint and new signage out front, but they are still the same store. They are still selling the same thing. They are still being run by the same shop owner. And because Satan continues to deceive with these exact same tactics as he uses here in the garden, we would do well to carefully observe his approach so that we can guard our hearts against these lies, so that we would not be taken in by the deception that deceives Eve. Think, for example, of a military commander. If he knows in advance from what direction and at what time the enemy plans to attack him, he's able to fortify in, his, in advance his position so that when the enemy comes, they find a position that is well defended and well fortified. It is when a commander does not know from what direction that the enemy is planning to attack him that he is most vulnerable to having his flank attacked. So the verses that we have in front of us are like receiving secret intelligence of the opponent's battle plan in attacking our hearts. If we do nothing with this intelligence, then we are opening ourselves up to catastrophic defeat. So as we look at this case study in deceit from our text, I'd like to note with you six approaches that Satan takes in his deception of Eve. And if we are paying careful attention then these verses should be filled with powerful application that you and I will have opportunity to apply to our own hearts, likely before this day is done. Six approaches. Approach number one, discredit and mischaracterize God's Word. Beginning in verse 25 of chapter 2, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said, to the serpent, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I'd like to just briefly remind you that in the original text of Scripture, there are no verse or chapter divisions, meaning that when we come to the end of chapter 2, verse 25 in our Bibles, between chapter 2 and chapter 3, there is no new verse, there is no new chapter, there is no new heading in the original text of Scripture. It's simply the start of the next sentence. And in this particular case, it's important for us to understand because of something that Moses does here. Now, in a movie, an audience is often warned that something bad is about to happen by an ominous change in the music. Everything seems to be going fine, and all of a sudden, the key changes in the music, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what's coming? Right? It's, It's a warning. Something bad is about to happen. It's foreshadowing. And Moses does something very similar in our text. He uses a brilliant wordplay. So in chapter 2, verse 25, the man and the woman are said to be naked and without shame. And this, while, while it is a physical description, it's more than a physical description. It's a moral description as well. It speaks to the fact that they are innocent. They have nothing to hide. They have nothing as of yet to conceal from one another. They know nothing yet of the shame of sin or of the hiddenness of deceit. They are able to be an open book with one another. And the word that Moses uses for naked is the word arumim. But in the next verse, the serpent is said to be crafty. The word for crafty that Moses uses is arum. Arumim, arum. It is a wordplay, one sentence, only a few words apart, that emphasizes to the reader two opposing concepts. It's a warning. It foreshadows to the reader that something is coming for the man and his wife that is not like them. Someone who is not innocent. Someone who has something to hide. Something he is concealing from them. 
Someone who has a hidden motive that their innocent minds cannot yet fathom. And the serpent begins this subterfuge by intentionally misquoting God. Did God actually say, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, of course, that's very nearly the opposite of what God said. God said that they could eat of any tree in the garden except for one. He put many trees in the garden, we read in Genesis chapter 2. They were all pleasing to the eye and good for food. There was abundance in the garden. There was only one that was forbidden them. But Satan inverts this. He's endeavoring to cast God's generosity as miserliness. You can almost hear in this statement that the serpent is already seeking to position himself as Eve's friend and God as her enemy. It's as though he has said, I can't believe what I've heard, but is it really true that God said you can't have any fruit from any of these trees in the garden? That can't be right, surely. Can it? It is an attack that not only lies about what God has said, but that also subtly puts both God and his word for the very first time in a position that will need to be defended. All the while positioning the serpent as the commiserating friend to the woman who can't believe that God would do such a thing if he truly loved these creatures. And Eve then tries to clarify what God has said, but she is already playing the game that the serpent would like her to play, and she has begun to play by his rules because she misquotes God too. In fact, in this little passage that we are looking at this morning, God is quoted multiple times and never correctly. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now we should note here that Eve was not yet created when God gave the command to the man regarding the tree back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. So whether Adam has not clearly conveyed God's commands to Eve, or Eve is here choosing to paraphrase God, we don't know. In either case, it's bad news. It is not good when humankind begin to add to or take from what God has said. And to help us see the differences between what God actually commanded and what Eve said God commanded, we've put both of these up side by side on the screen for you to look at for a point of comparison. I'd like you to note three things that Eve does. First, she leaves out the word surely twice. God says, you may surely eat of any tree, and he says, if you eat of that one forbidden tree, you will surely die. Eve leaves both of these out. In the first case, we need to note that God has not grudgingly provided. He has not reluctantly provided. He has emphatically, gladly, and firmly provided. You may surely eat. And that emphasis is entirely lost in Eve's retelling of what God said. But on the flip side, God is also equally emphatic about what the consequence will be of their rebellion should they disobey. If you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Eve leaves that out as well. And so she again loses the emphasis in what God has said in her retelling of his word. Second, Eve leaves out the word every. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But what God actually said was, you may surely eat of every tree. Not some trees, not most trees, every tree. There is only one singular exception. The emphasis when God speaks is on the abundance of provision and choice that he has left available to them. A garden full of trees, pleasing to the eye, good for food, 
all open to you except this one, abundance, generosity. But again, that emphasis on God's generosity is lost when Eve retells the story. So in the first two instances, Eve omits. In the third instance, Eve adds to God's word. She adds, in this case, to God's prohibition. To God's prohibition, you shall not eat. Eve adds, neither shall you touch it. So Eve not only diminishes God's generosity, but she overstates God's strictness. As one commentator said, in this, she would have many successors. So already, Eve is playing the game that the serpent wants her to play, and she has adapted herself to playing by his rules. He's setting the terms. And in so doing, God's character and his word are already being subtly undermined. Now, Satan himself is clearly more than willing to mischaracterize God's word. He will do so again later, as we saw in the Scripture reading this morning, in the temptation of Jesus. He's more than happy to mischaracterize the word of God. But Satan is delighted when we take from or add to God's word. Because in either case, we have become vulnerable when we doubt and disbelieve and add to and take from what God has said. Because suddenly, it is no longer God's authority, it is our authority. And it places us in a position of grave peril, which is why Eve is now in a position of grave danger. The next two approaches in the deception come quickly, and so we're going to look at them together. Approach number two, attack the truthfulness of God's Word. Attack number three, alleviate fear of judgment. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The gloves are coming off now. In fact, here Satan actually quotes God more accurately than Eve just did. He now corrects her. She said, lest we die. He actually quotes God, no, you will surely die, but you're not going to surely die. And the reason is because he's already gotten Eve to misrepresent God, so she's already doing that for him. He no longer needs to continue to do that. He can move to the next stage of the game, which is not just to mischaracterize God's word, but it's to take God's word directly on and say, it's not true. Don't believe it. Satan is telling the woman, God has lied to you. He can't be trusted. He's unreliable. And perhaps here there's even a suggestion of, hey, look at me. I defy God, and I'm not dead. You can do the same thing. God doesn't do what he says he will do. His word is not true. My aunt used to have a drainage pipe that ran underneath her driveway. And I was the kind of kid that loved hunting for frogs, the kind of frogs that would have loved a drainage pipe like that that ran underneath the driveway. And my aunt knew this. She didn't want me going under there, potentially getting hurt, you know, all those sorts of things. And so she used to tell me that there were crocodiles that lived in that drainage pipe and that they would surely eat me if I went in there. So I stayed away. But at some point I realized that from a climate perspective, that could not be true. I think it was like last month or something. It both wasn't true, and because it wasn't true, it was an idle threat. And Satan is saying here that God has both lied, and because he's lied, the threat is empty. That God's word isn't true, and therefore the consequences of defying God's word are not true either. 
It's the same lie that the simpleton in Proverbs 7 believes. When the adulterous woman tells him, my husband is not at home, we can indulge all the sin we want and we will never be found out and there will never be any consequences to what we do. It's the same lie that we believe every time we rationalize the sin that we delight in, all the while telling ourselves that God won't take it seriously. And it is a lie that many denominations are happily preaching today that characterize God as benevolent, unconditional love who would never think of judging our sin, that you and I can live however we want and God will just love you and welcome you and embrace you. That is a very old lie from a very old place. It is a lie straight from that ancient serpent's mouth. So, approach number four and five come next. Undermine confidence now in the goodness of God. Approach five, appeal to an object of desire. The serpent continues, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Satan's thrust here is really two-pronged. First, not only can't God's word be trusted, but his goodness can't be trusted either. His character is now called into question. You think that God is for you. How cute. He's not. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. He's keeping from you some good thing that he wants all for himself because he's selfish. He cannot be trusted. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't want you to be all that you really could be. That's the line. If we don't think that this lie is still working, then how many times have you sinned because you think that the thing that is forbidden is the thing that will make you happy and satisfy you? That that one thing you need that would really make you happy or bring your life satisfaction is the thing that God has forbidden you. Isn't he just a killjoy? That's a lie, again, from a very old place. But second, Satan suggests that there is something that you don't have that you need. He opens Eve's heart to covetousness for the first time. Eve, up until this moment, is content until the serpent tells her, this tree has a knowledge to offer you that you should want, but that you don't have. So not only is God not good, but the thing that he's keeping from you, you should desire that thing. You should want it. And you can have it if you'll just take it. So he questions God's character and he places before her an item to be desired that is forbidden. And suddenly what God has given is no longer enough. Can we resonate with that? Is Satan still using that line on us? And the horrible irony of this whole situation is that they can eat of any other tree of the garden. All of which, as we've said, are good. But not only can they eat from every other tree of the garden, they can eat of the other tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of life. The gift to them from the God of abundant life that offers them life every time they eat of it, the gift that they should desire and prize more than anything else. And yet suddenly this tree of life seems like a common ho-hum thing compared to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what covetous does. It takes a good gift, and it says, not enough. But all five of these initial approaches have been simple preparations for the final approach. 
The siege on the human heart has been waged. The battering ram has come, and five times it has pounded on the gate and weakened it severely, and now it is drawn back to deliver what will be the final blow to demolish the last defense. Approach number six, awaken pride. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You said in your heart, I will be like the Most High. Suddenly a new thought, a new prospect is opened in front of Eve. You're pretty great. You are. You're pretty special. But you could be greater than you ever imagined. You are created in God's image, it's true. But the work was left a little bit unfinished. It's not quite completed. You're like God in some ways, but there's one last thing that would truly make you like God, but he didn't give it to you. God doesn't want you to know this. Why? Because he wants all of the worship for himself. And suddenly the creature wants to be the creator. God has already made them like him, but on his terms. Now they would be like God, but on their terms. And that pride, that desire for worship, is the idolatrous seed from which every other sin grows. Because we want everything and everyone to serve us, to meet our needs, to satisfy our desires, to soothe our ego. We want everyone and everything to worship us. That's what we want. Because we are children of our first parents who heard that they could be like God, not on, their, not on his terms, but on theirs. The terrible hypocrisy of this is that Satan knows full well that this is a despicable lie. And he knows this because he was the first who wanted to be like the Most High. He reached for it, and he discovered to his bitter disappointment that not only was it so far beyond his grasp, but that in trying to reach for it, he lost all the glory that he'd been given. He knows full well the misery that he is now trying to sell to the man and his wife. He wants to destroy the image of God in those who have become more like God than he now is. And so seeing how Satan works, observing his tactics, we have opportunity to guard our hearts against these same deceptions that Satan continues to use against us today. To discredit and mischaracterize God's word. To attack the truthfulness of God's word. To alleviate fear of judgment. To undermine confidence in the goodness of God. To appeal to an object of desire and finally to awaken and stir to life our pride. So we've noted the setup. We've seen the six tactics that Satan uses in weaving his web of deceit. But what is the outcome for us when we flirt or entertain Satan's lies? What is the outcome of toying with temptation? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We see here how we will rationalize sin once we have tolerated temptation. She saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. Notice, by the way, that the the fruit on this tree was not some worm-eaten piece of rotten fruit. Sin always looks 
desirable. It always seems appealing. She saw it was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, she had reasons. She worked her way to the point of understanding why it would be acceptable for her to transgress the command. The lust of the flesh and the pride of life always do have reasons. She justified and rationalized why it would be acceptable to disobey, and we do precisely the same thing. We have all kinds of reasons and excuses and explanations and permissions and extenuating circumstances that we use to justify to ourselves and to others why it is okay in this instance for us to do what we ought not to do. We do it all the time. She took and she ate. The poison was not in the fruit. The poison had sprung up in her heart, the poison of pride. And by taking and by eating, She gave herself over to it. But then we read the startling words that she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now perhaps we might have been wondering this whole time, okay, when is Adam going to show up? When is Adam going to step in and deal with this serpent? When is he going to be the superhero who comes and saves the girl? But Adam has been standing there this whole time doing nothing, saying nothing. Nothing. Now the serpent from the very first moment he comes onto the scene has been undermining the created order. Adam was the one who was entrusted to work and to guard the garden from whatever it is that might come and seek to corrupt it. He was the one who was charged with protecting the sanctuary and the woman who was created there. He was the one who was given authority. He was the one who was told not to eat of the forbidden fruit. But the serpent doesn't come and address himself to Adam. The serpent comes to Eve. He subverts the created order. But the fact that Adam has been there this whole time is underscored by the fact that while the serpent has been addressing himself to Eve, every time that the serpent says you, he has been using the second person plural in the Hebrew. Meaning that while he is speaking to Eve, two people are listening. Adam has been there this whole time, which means that he has completely failed his priest-king mission. Completely failed. Mission failure. I mean, just imagine for a second, what would happen if the moment the serpent began speaking to Eve, Adam stepped between the serpent and his wife, put his heel on the serpent's head, and crushed down? What happens? Well, human history is totally different. The vision of Eden is completely different. The mission, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, is completely different. But that is, of course, not what happens. Instead, Adam not only passively watches as his wife is deceived, but he also passively receives from her hand the forbidden fruit. In fact, the only active thing that Adam does in this whole passage is eat the fruit. And what makes matters worse is that we find out later Adam wasn't deceived. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is explaining why men are entrusted with the roles of authority and with the functions of teaching in the church. And to explain this, to give his reasons, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Timothy, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. We looked at that before when we discussed the gender and the gender roles in the creation account in chapter 2. But he goes on, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, the created order. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, this has sometimes been preached as suggesting that 
women can't lead men or teach men in the church because they are silly things who are prone to being deceived. Sometimes it's preached that way. But that is not what Paul is saying. He is not suggesting that women are especially prone to deception or that they are particularly gullible creatures. Not at all. In fact, the emphasis is completely the other way. Paul isn't mad at Eve. He's mad at Adam. He is saying, look what happens when men fail to do what they were created to do. When they are passive, when they don't lead, when they don't protect, when they don't shepherd. See what happens. His rebuke is not to the women in the church. His rebuke is to the men in the church. This is what happens when you don't do what God called and made you to do. You are looking like Adam. That's the rebuke. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. And he was the one who had been instructed about the tree. He's the one who was commanded about the guard to command the garden and to protect it. And this woman, which all should have warned him that there was something to protect them from. And so the serpent attacks the created order by addressing himself to the woman. The woman is then deceived, and then she further undermines the created order by taking the fruit, giving it to her husband, and thereby usurping his authority, his leadership and initiative, and Adam acquiesces and passively takes everything. Which is why the burden of everything that happens here falls on Adam. Next week, we're going to see when God comes... He does not say, guys, where are you? He does not say, serpent, where are you? He does not say, Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? When God comes to get an account of what has happened, he requires it of the one whom he charged with the authority and responsibility to protect and to guard it. He comes to Adam. And it is why the New Testament authors do not lay the responsibility for sin on Eve's doorstep. They place it at Adam's feet. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. See, the serpent succeeds because Adam fails. So here's the thought that we'd like to close with this morning. We need a better Adam. The first Adam succumbs in a garden, a garden that is filled with abundance, that is filled with God's provision everywhere for him. But Jesus, the second Adam, as we read from the scripture reading this morning, resists Satan's temptation while he is in the middle of a wilderness and is deprived of food, while he is very hungry. The first Adam allows God's word to be misrepresented and God's character to be maligned. But the second Adam refutes Satan's mischaracterization of God's word with God's word. The first Adam and his wife are enticed by their pride. But the second Adam, though he has offered all of the kingdoms of the world, if he will only bow the knee to Satan, refuses to worship anyone other than the Lord his God. The first Adam passively allows his bride to be corrupted, but the second Adam will actively give himself in order to sanctify his bride. And in Genesis 3, verse 6, we read these devastating words, she took and she ate. As one commentator wrote, so easy in act, so hard in the undoing. But it would be undone. Someone would come who would make all the wrong things come untrue. She took and she ate. 
The second Adam will look at the serpent and he will say, watch this, Satan. And he will transform those very words of death she took and she ate. He will transform those very words of death into new words of life when he says, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Satan imagines at the close of our text that he has won. But by God's grace, the war is not over. It has just begun. Because another Adam is coming. And another tree is coming. But with the second Adam at the second tree, it will not be disobedience. It will be perfect obedience. And while there will be death at the foot of both trees, at the second tree, this death will mean not defeat. It will mean victory. As the hymnist says, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to our rescue came. Let's pray. O Father, when we look into your word and we discover the ugliness of our rebellion against you, It is easy for us to understand what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that by our own will and desire and our actions, we have become children of wrath, sons of disobedience, fully worthy of your just wrath and judgment incensed against us. And yet we give thanks to you that the story does not end in Genesis 3 verse 6. as it says in Ephesians chapter two, but God, that you have yet to act decisively in this story to redeem a people for yourself, to renew the image that is in us so that one day we will, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, be renewed image bearers into the image of the new man, Jesus Christ, to the eternal praise of your glory. So help us, Father, to live lives that reflect the glory of the gospel and the glory of your son as redeemed people who have been transformed from enemies into your beloved children. Help us live in the power of that identity, we pray in Christ's name.